We're in John chapter 1, as Emily read, verses 14 through 18. And the question that is before us is, how does anyone come to know God? How might we actually be able to enter into a meaningful relationship with God? It's a question that's of universal concern. I sincerely believe that at some point in your life, every man, every woman has this question land on their conscience. Can I know God? To which the atheist responds, God does not exist. But for most people today, I don't think the existence of God is really the issue. Right? Let me see if I can prove it. Right now on your bulletins, go ahead and draw a circle. Yep, go for it. Draw a circle. The circle represents all the knowledge that exists in the world. Okay? That's what the circle represents. Now go ahead and fill in that circle with how much knowledge you think you have. <laughs> if it's larger than a dot... <laughs> Because a, a, a dot is about all the knowledge that all of us have combined. So if a dot, small dot in the middle is all the knowledge that we might have, is it possible that some knowledge could be out there that could exist that would be evidence that God does exist? I think so, of course. So I don't think the issue is, does God exist? I think the issue instead is the knowability of God. Consider it this way. It's one thing to have a conversation with somebody who says, aliens exist. I'm like, all right, E.T., phone home, great. Okay. It's a completely different conversation when someone says, I know an alien. <laughs> Yeah. People are puzzled when you say God exists. But people are really perturbed when you say, I know God. So the agnostic answers, we can't know God. Now, if you're new to hearing that term, Thomas Henry Huxley coins the word agnostic in 1869. It comes from two Greek words, ah, that means without, gnosis, which means knowledge, without knowledge. And so here's his definition, Huxley's words. It simply means that a man shall not say he knows or believes that which he has no scientific grounds for professing to know or believe. The bigger issue here really is how do we know anything? What is the basis of our knowledge how do you know what you know? I think we got different ways by which we know something. Three common ones are, I think, I experiment, I feel. These are ways in which we know. I think is the way of rationalism. I just sit down and I think it out. Thinking is a very powerful tool for some of us more than others, okay? But it's a powerful tool, and you just sit down and you think things out. And so you can basically say, on the basis of certain axioms, right, I can reach certain conclusions. I experiment. Experiment is the way of empiricism. It means I look, I weigh, I touch, 
I taste, I feel. I analyze what is actually there. I'm looking at the real world. That is the power of empiricism. You're not dealing with theory in your head of what you think. You're looking at what is in fact there. That's its greatest strength. But its greatest weakness is you don't always actually know what's actually there in front of you. You can misperceive things all the time. I can never be sure that I actually got it right. Because empiricism is always open to the idea that there could be a new piece of information that could come to you tomorrow. And if you're open to that new piece of information, it could blow up all the conclusions that you had yesterday. And you have to start all over and say, guess I'll have to take that into consideration. And so, yes, you're dealing with the real world, but you're dealing with uncertainties. You can never know for sure. Finally, I feel. It's a way of romanticism. Now, some of you might mock that, but we do know certain things by how we feel that you can't think and that you cannot experiment on. It is just your intuition, how you feel about it. And that is a valid way in which we know certain things. We are not making fun of those of you in here that are feelers over thinkers. How you feel about it matters. It helps you know things. It protects you. It's a good idea. Those are the three ways in which we know. Now, before we apply those three to God, are you able to just do it in a way that has a little less baggage? Can we do it in a way that has a little bit of fun? You guys up for a little bit of fun? Okay, here it is. Tell me about my sister. Now, those of you that know about my sister or have met my sister, you are not allowed to answer. Okay? Tell me about my sister. First of all, just by thinking about her. You've never met her. If you've met her or you know about her, you are not allowed to answer. It is just what you think about my sister. Tell me what you can know about her just by thinking. Go ahead, shout it out. She's a female. She's a human. Thank you. I'm a human. She has a brother. Yes, she has a brother. She likes to tease me. She's short. <laughs> Presumably, she had the maiden name Owens, right? You could probably guess what age she is, fairly young, based upon, you know, some deductive reasoning. Okay, um, you know that she probably came from the same parents in order to be my sister, but she could be adopted, okay? But basically, so far, what do you know about my sister? So far, it's all by definition. What you've just done is basically just to find what a sister is. She is my child's aunt. Wow. <laughs> Insightful. <laughs> you know, but you know nothing about her as a person. You can't think her up as a person. You can't know a person through that method. Okay, now I bring my sister in. I sit her up here on the chair. She says nothing, does nothing. She just stands still, absolutely still, without opening her mouth. What a blessing that would be for our family life. Okay, no, okay, no. I shouldn't say that about my sister, okay? But now what can you know about her? What she looks like. She's alive. You can experiment on her. You know that she would weigh a certain amount. 
You can say, as Bill did, that she's such and such short, okay, or tall, okay. You could even take her blood type and see what kind of blood she has. Anything else? She's quiet. Right. I won't be embarrassed if you say she's good looking. I know where you got the idea from. It must have been at least somebody in the family, right? Um, but you can take all kinds of information about my sister, but would you know my sister? No. Okay, how do you feel about her? Well, she's related to me, so you have a form of pity for her, right? Oh, a woman of such beauty and grace, you know. Oh, man. And uh, you might feel like you'd like to get to know her, but how you feel about her won't actually help you get to know her. So by rationalism, what you think, what do you know about my sister? You can't even know that she exists because, in fact, I don't have a sister. I know. By experimentation, what can you know about her? Not much because she doesn't exist. How do you feel about her? You can wish, you can dream, you could long for, like my mother did, that her other son would have a sister, <laughs> okay? But it won't change the fact that my mom has two sons. None of those things allow you to know my sister. Now, that was all in fun and games because a lot of people use the same thing to try to know God, right? People attempt to work God out by human reflection. I'm just going to go out in the woods. I'm just going to think about God. I'm going to think about it for a bit. I'm going to work out what he's like, and I'm just going to have a personal relationship with him by just what I think about him. You can't know God that way. Experimentation. If God would just reveal himself to me, if he would just come down and I can do some kind of analysis on him and prove that he really is, then I would know him. No. I mean, at best you would know about him, but you would not know him. Our feelings about God don't help us to know him either. So now I've put you in a box and you're like, uh-oh, is God unknowable? How do you get to know somebody? What about Revelation. When you want to know a person, you need revelation. Here I stand, and I talk, and there you sit, and listen, and think. Please think, and you think. And at the end of this time together, what do you think I will know about you? Not much. How can I know you? You're one more face in the crowd this morning. And so if I was to bump into you at Market Basket tomorrow, you wouldn't say, hey, do you remember me? 15th row from the back, third over from the left. Yes, we had a deep personal relationship. No, but you will remember me. Why? Unforgettable experience? <laughs> I've been traumatized. No, you will remember me because I'm the one doing the talking. And so you will know something about my attitude, my sense of humor, or humorlessness. You will know something of my beliefs, my convictions, my values. So you could bump into me at Market Basket and you would say, I know him. The way you get to know people is by revelation. They reveal themselves. They show themselves to you. It's the way we get to know people. And it's the same with God. God 
declares Himself to you so that you can know Him. And the Bible is a big help for us to hear God speak. Notice three ways that God reveals Himself for you to know Him. God reveals, here's our outline, God reveals Himself personally, publicly, and purposefully. God reveals Himself personally, publicly, and purposefully. God wants you to know Him. And those that know Him, follow Him. It is a revelation for a relationship. First, God reveals Himself personally. We have three words that we have to understand in verse 14. If we understand these three words, we will see how God has revealed Himself personally. John 1.14 contain our three words, and the Word became flesh. Word became flesh. We know from our prior sermons that the Word is a title for God. We got that from John 1.1. Look at the top of the page. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The reason why God can be addressed as the Word is because God wants to be known, and He can make Himself known. People are known through their words. And you cannot separate God from His Word. His words communicate a revelation of who He is. A person's Word is the clearest and ultimate revelation of who they are. So God reveals Himself through His words so that you can have a relationship with Him. It has profound implications for us as we understand Christianity. The fact that our God speaks, defines, and distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Okay? Religion speaks of man's efforts to try to come up and try to reach God. But Christianity is completely different. Christianity is not a religion. It is a revelation. God introduces Himself. God reveals Himself personally by His own Word. By His own Word, He writes Himself into our story. And He reveals Himself as the author of the story of humanity. The Word became. Our second word, became. The Word already was. But now the Word becomes something that He was not. He became flesh. In other words, this Word wrote Himself into our story of humanity. He came from the outside in to disclose who He was. And that would be how it would have to be if we were to know God. Think about it this way. Who in here is familiar with Charlie Brown? If Charlie Brown was ever able to know that he was just a character in a comic story, if he was ever to know his maker, his author, Charles Schultz, Charles Schultz would have to write himself into the Charlie Brown cartoon and to introduce himself to Charlie Brown and say, I'm the one that created you. Charlie Brown could never reach out of the cartoon and be able to say, hey, I had a maker. This is a cartoon. There, there's more to life than this. No, 
It would have to come from the outside in. The author would have to write himself into the story and reveal that he exists and he's there. And the story of the gospel is that's what God has done. The Word became flesh. God visits us in flesh, incarnation. It's a new word maybe for some of you. Incarnation is just a really big word that means God incarnate, incarnate in flesh. God came in the flesh. God chose to make himself known in a real historical person. And that real historical person, we've been waiting for this name for 17 verses. John does not give us the name until verse 17, and we've been waiting for it. But in verse 17, we finally hear that God has revealed himself in this person, and this person's name is Jesus. Jesus Christ has revealed God personally to us. Here's the application. However you relate to Jesus is how you relate to God. Remember, God and His Word are inseparable, and His Word is Jesus. How you treat Jesus is how you treat God. You want to know God? You have to know Jesus. We can say it negatively and positively. John loves to do that. Know Jesus. Know God. Know Jesus. K-N-O-W. Know God. For this Jesus is that God. But do you know how hard it would be for Jesus to get anyone to actually believe that he is God? Jesus was a Jew. Jews have this concept of God. He is a God who is one. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. He is the creator of the world, infinite in power and glory. A God that no one can see and live. And now you have a Jew, Jesus Christ, who says to other Jews, I am God. And some of those Jews actually believe that he is the eternal creator God. Look at verse 15. John who is a first century Jew, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Even though Jesus was born after John, John believes that he was before him because this Jesus is that eternal God. How do you account for a first century Jew believing a man before their eyes that they're going to live with and walk with for the next three and a half years is God. How do you worship a man that you see sleep there and eat there and get dressed there? To believe that Jesus truly reveals God personally, Jesus must show publicly and with compelling proof that he is God. And that's what John, the writer, wants to establish. Notice that John is talking very historically in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt, past tense, among us. And we have seen, past tense, his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The fact that 
Jesus got any Jew to believe that he is God is unaccountable unless Jesus reveals God publicly and with compelling proof. I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm God. It's completely different to give evidence that you are that God. They would have to be able to look upon him and to see that he had the same glory as the God of the Old Testament. And what do we have? Well, if you were able to read Greek, you'd see something that you can't see in English. It's astounding. John, the writer, could have chosen any number of words to describe that Jesus lived here. There's a ton of them to choose from. But John doesn't choose any of them. What he literally says in verse 14 is this, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Hmm. Dwelt is the word tabernacled. The tabernacle is where God dwells. And by using this word, John is wanting you to remember the fact that Moses too wanted to know God. Moses too wanted to see God's glory. He begged God in Exodus 33, Lord, show me your glory. Remember that? And what does God say? I can't. It'll kill you. You will not survive it. But I will dwell behind a veil because my glory must be concealed. You cannot behold it. So Moses could not see God and live. He could only hear who God was. And this is who the Lord describes himself as to Moses. Exodus 30, 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, he heard it, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But eventually, the audible becomes visible. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God in the flesh dwells among men to reveal publicly the same glory that is of the Father. For it is a glory that is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth being the exact same two words that God used to describe himself in Exodus 34. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Grace and truth. What Moses heard, John and his friends saw. They saw the glory of God publicly in the real historical person of Jesus Christ. And what they saw publicly was compelling proof. John actually details all of those manifestations, all of those signs of glory in the rest of his gospel. Because they have seen the glory, they say, this Jesus must be that God. Tim Keller has famously said, God has not given us a watertight argument. God has given us a watertight person. And what he means is that the compelling proof that Christianity is true is not a watertight argument. It is a watertight person. What he's saying is that God expects you to look at Jesus. Look at what he said publicly. 
Look at what he did publicly and think. Please, and think. Have you done that? Have you really taken it seriously? There is no need for uncertainty. Jesus has revealed God personally. Now there is no room for an excuse because Jesus has perfectly revealed God in public with compelling proof. God came down. God dwelt among us. God has declared who He is through Jesus Christ. We're left now to conclude with what difference does it make? This is point three. So what? So what? So what that God became one of us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ? So what that there's compelling proof that Jesus is God? What's the point? What is the payoff for all of that work? Well, one key answer to that question is right here in our last three verses of the introduction. Why did Jesus become a man? Jesus became a part of humanity to help humanity. We need a mediator. And Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to be a mediator between God and us because Jesus Christ is the God-man. Notice in verses 16 through 18, the two parties that need to be reconciled. You're going to hear we and God. Verses 16 through 18, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John says there's a purpose to Christ's coming. And the purpose of Christ's coming is to bridge the gap between you and God, which is profoundly what humanity needs, even if you didn't come here this morning recognizing that as your greatest need. We've been saying it all along. Every other religion wants you to try to reach up to get to know God. But in order for you to know God and to have a meaningful relationship with Him, He must come down for you to know Him. But there is a gap that separates us. And this gap is not spatial. This gap is spiritual. Think of a gap as a gap between a couple. I think we've all been there or we know somebody that has gone through this. Think of a couple, two people who were in love, married, became husband and wife, and now they are estranged. What happened? You got hurt. You got angry. You pulled away. And to justify your lack of reconciliation, you take all those things you loved about the person and you turn it into flaws. You know, he used to love her because she was organized and detailed. But now... He sees her as always checking up on him, nitpicky, and a lack of trust. She used to love his carefree nature, but now what she sees is someone who is unreliable and careless. A gap opens between the couple. Something has to happen to close the gap. For to enjoy the presence of their spouse again, They have to be at peace with their spouse. 
Well, the gap that you and I experience between each other is, I mean, just infinitely small. It's nothing in compared to the gap between God and us. There's a gap between us and God because there is a turf war going on in every human heart. A, a turf war is when two people claim the same spot, the same turf, right? And God and I claim the same turf, my life. God and I, we both want to be king of my life. And when two people claim the same turf, we all know there's going to be a turf war. It's a universal turf war. Every single one of us are engaged in it. And to justify our war with God, we turn all of His glorious attributes into flaws. His infinity that He's above us. Now we say, oh, He is so obscure. His holiness. Now we say, oh, there are so many rules that He just wants to ruin my life and to restrict me. I mean, if God loved me, He would let me do me. His sovereignty to do whatever He wants. We now see as the actions of an unaccountable megalomaniac. Why would I want to believe in a God who allows that to happen? He should be accountable to me. There's a gap. And if we're ever going to be able to enjoy the presence of God, we must be at peace with God. Take a look at our passage again and see who this someone is that could help us be at peace with God. It's a fundamental understanding of how we understand that God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're new to reading the Bible... Actually, if you've been reading the Bible your whole life, that verse has a lot of Christianity, Christianese in it. It has all kinds of insider talk Christianity. But the bottom line is this. Jesus Christ became a part of humanity to help humanity. Let's step back and we'll, we'll pick up the details. We'll go nice and slow for you. Because John's referring to a lot of things in the Old Testament. So that you can compare and contrast how powerful and how meaningful Jesus Christ is. So John, when he's saying here the law came through Moses, he's taking us back to the book of Exodus where God came down on a mountain to reveal his glory. There was fire, there was lightning, there was earthquakes. The people were terrified to go into God's presence. And so they asked Moses, would, would you go up on our behalf? Would you mediate? So Moses bridges the gap. God spoke to Moses, and he came down with a word, ten words, known as the law. And those words, that law, was a great revealer of both God's character and the people's character, or should I say, lack of character. I mean, as hard as they tried, and that's given them the benefit of the doubt, they could never measure up to God's standard. God's law. They could never reflect God's character perfectly. And there the law stood, speaking, demanding, sentencing. 
You know, the law is a lot like a bathroom scale. Yep. It exposes the problem, but it gives you no remedy, no solution, and no sympathy. It is just a silent sermon of the awful truth. And that's why humanity needs help. And what kind of help could bridge the gap between God and man? A mediator, a God-man. You see, to pay for our sins, he had to be a real man, not an angel, not an apparition, but a real human being. We're talking about it, born under the law, perfectly keeping the law, taking the judgment of the law. But then he also, on the other hand, had to be God. His death had to be of infinite value to cover our sins. And because of his mediation, we can now be at peace with God and actually enjoy the presence of God. For from his fullness, we all receive his grace upon grace, for grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He bridged the gap between the creator and creation. The mediator between God and man, Jesus became a part of humanity to help humanity. And he can actually help you know God. We know that he achieved his purpose in coming for look at where he stands. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He who atoned for your sin in his death did not stay dead, but he resurrected on the third day and is, the first time we have a present tense, is at the right hand of the Father's side, which means his payment was acceptable, and now he can speak on your behalf in your defense as a mediator in the court of law. It's been paid for, not guilty. Do you know God personally? Not just know about him, but do you know him? When you know him as he's revealed himself to be, I think Jesus will exceed your expectations. For John says, Jesus exegeted God so that you can encounter God. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him know. The Greek word there is exegete. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He makes clear what is there. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Have you met him? Have you entered into a meaningful relationship with him? In other words, if you have met him, are you following him? There are no halfway measures. Think about it. If what the Bible says is true, if it's actually possible to have a meaningful relationship with God, that relationship cannot be moderately important. Oh, it's the thing I do on Sundays. All those that meet Him treat Him as God. All those that know Him follow Him. 
If you are here and you call yourself a Christian, there is no subset of Christianity. There are those that know him, and then there's those that follow him. Those are the extra, you know, zealous type. That's not what the Bible teaches. Christians are followers of Christ. Christians are disciples of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. The only people who are disciples are Christians. And the only people who are Christians are disciples. If you do not follow him, it might mean that your claim is hollow. If you are not following him, you haven't really met him. You're not engaging with his claims. You just have a God of your imagination, not a God of the incarnation. Jesus reveals the real God so you can have a real relationship with Him. Father God, we just thank You for our time around Your Word, looking at these monumental verses of 14 through 18, seeing that You came and dwelt among us, revealing Your glory, and now we can receive grace. We thank You. We praise You. You are our living hope. You are at the Father's side, declaring us innocent because of what You've done. Thank You for making Yourself known. Thank you for drawing us into a relationship with you. And thank you, Lord, that you give us a desire to prioritize a relationship with you above every other thing. We ask that you'd fill all of our vision, strengthen us in our faith, give us confidence to walk before you and to please you in all that we say and do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and sing.